Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the iconic TV show that ran for seven seasons from 1997 to 2003, first on the WB Network and for the last two seasons on UPN. It's currently available to stream on Hulu and Amazon Prime. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score across those seven seasons is 83%. And the critics' consensus for season four reads, Buffy enters its fourth season on shaky ground, but finishes with a surprisingly satisfying season finale. I pulled the season four quote because that's the season where I worked on Buffy as a DGA trainee. And my guests today are some of my friends from the show. Todd McIntosh, you've been doing makeup for film and television since 1977. And you oversaw the Buffy makeup department for the first six seasons. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you, Skid. Nice to see you again. Really glad you could make it, Todd. Also joining us, Athena Alexander. You've been working in the film industry since 1990, and you worked on Buffy as the key second assistant director for seasons four, five, and six. As the key second AD, you are my boss. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Skid. Thank you for having me. And in our last chair, Douglas No, you've been a makeup artist since 1990, and you worked with us on Buffy for the run of season four. Welcome back. Nice to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see all of you. I got to say, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Listeners, this is your spoiler warning for all things Buffy. But first, let's start with some origin stories. How did everybody get involved with the show? Todd, you had the most time on it. Why don't you tell us how things got started that first season for you? Well, actually, it was a kind of interesting story. I was doing the Brady Bunch movies, and I think it was the second one. And the girl playing the uh, middle Brady. My brain, (laughs) I'm going to be this way throughout the whole thing. So (laughs) our names are gone. Uh, Was trying out for the role of the best friend on a pilot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I said, you know, that sounds great. I would really love to do it. Can you take my resume to the office and kind of drop it in a pile so at least they can see it somewhere? Which she did, but uh, nothing came of that. Weeks went by and eventually I got a call from uh, Tom and Barry Berman, who I had worked with a little bit. And they said they had a pilot for a show that they would like me to run. And I agreed to do it and it was Buffy. It wasn't a pilot. It was actually a presentation, which is a partial pilot. So it it wasn't complete, but full steam ahead. I went into it, had a wonderful time on it. And it was intriguing to me that a lot of the people that were on the, the presentation really weren't into it. We had a DP who was, um, I, I hesitate to try and differentiate between uninterested and disinterested, (laughs) (laughs) but he was both. (laughs) And we had a a first AD who had a small baby. And in the middle of takes, she would rip open the Velcro and put the baby on the breast. And, you know, we'd stop and turn at this sound and nobody cared. We had a script supervisor who said this was the most unintelligible script she had ever read that it would never make it, no one was ever going to do this show, and it was incomprehensible. At the end of the run of the piece, I went to Joss in his office and I said, if this goes, I want to be there. This is an exciting show. I want to be part of it, please. And then about, a, I don't remember how long it was. I feel like it was a year later. I got a phone call out of the blue saying they're doing the show. It got green-lighted and would I like to be the department head? And that's how I got the job. 
Wow. You know, now, Todd, I think it's not a spoiler to say, and it might even be its own separate podcast to go too deep on this, but you had a little bit of interest in the vampire space even before Buffy came along. This <laughs> sort of seems to be fed to you as far as an opportunity, but to almost serendipity. Absolutely. I, I mean, the reason that I became a makeup artist was a TV show called Dark Shadows that had a bunch of monsters on it, most particularly a vampire, but there were witches and Frankensteins and werewolves and all the rest of it. And that sparked my interest. But not only was I interested in doing the monster makeups, there the witch on the show was an extremely beautiful woman. And I got interested in the beauty makeups as well. So I've always balanced both sides. And Buffy was exactly that. It was the perfect balance between monsters and beauty. Well, Todd, you're going to give us some more insights into those early years. We're going to come back to that. But first, Athena, talk to us about when you started in season four and how you got involved with the show. Well, it was my first uh, DGA show. I had not been Directors Guild prior. So I came from non-union, got my days not as PA, but as a a non-union assistant director. And I had put all my days in and I was on the qualification list in 1996. And I was waiting for the right show to join. Like I'm leaving my independent world to go to the big TV. And then I got Buffy. I got called in for an interview. Uh, Alan Steinman, who was a key second, moved up to first when Angel started. So some of the first moved over to Angel. And Alan moved up to first AD. And I got in for the interview and I got the job. It's not as exciting as Todd's. (laughs) (laughs) There's no creativity. Except there's a good story about the interview. I was up north on a show and I had brought my friend's dog and the dog was in the car the entire interview. So I had nothing on my mind except a dog barking in a car. So I think that kept me distracted enough to uh, get the job, I guess. (laughs) It was kind of a weird situation. Like, I really got to go, guys. I really got to (laughs) go. We'll get back to some of that additional excitement. Rolling on, Douglas, you worked for Todd Ford's season. How did you guys meet? I'm pretty sure we met on season two or season three. I was a day checker. I wasn't a full-time employee. It wasn't until season four that Todd asked me to join the uh, makeup crew. And I honestly can't remember how my name came to Todd's attention. Uh, But I surely said yes, of course, when he asked me if I wanted to do season four. No, I I don't remember either. At, At that point, we had such a huge turnover of makeup people going through the second trailer, the monster trailer, that, uh, you know, I think it might have been Kenny Myers who recommended you. That sounds like it's right. You know, that sounds like the right thing. He was, uh, he was a huge advocate of mine early in my career. So now I know who to thank. <laughs> <laughs> my origin story, just sort of as a little background on this, as folks who regularly listen to the show know, I was a Director's Guild trainee, which meant that the show hired a trainee sight unseen, and then we would be assigned for about 10 weeks at a time to get our DGA days. I think you talked about going non-union. This was another path in. And I think for me, Buffy was probably my second assignment as a trainee. Uh, I had done Party of Five out the gate, and I'm pretty sure I came over to you guys after that. My memories, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, so you know, my memories are a little fuzzy about a lot of things. I don't remember any other trainee but you. <laughs> that Thanks, could be Todd. good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> you got it on the wall. <laughs> well, we'll see when we get into the stories which way that, which way that leans, but uh, I'll take it positive for now, Todd. <laughs> 
Todd, let's go back to you and revisit that first season. Talk to us about how the show came together, what got established, what your early challenges were to get this thing off the ground. Like all TV series, uh, it had its challenges as far as the creative setting of patterns. What I find interesting when I look back on it now is the products that we had then versus the products we have now. I've mentioned Kenny Myers to you. He came to me one day on, I don't know what season it was, three, four, possibly. And he brought a little tray in of some makeup that he was trying to invent. It was a product that was alcohol soluble. And we, we played with it together. And the first thing I did with it was paint in um, Spike's eyebrow scar. I used it for that because the, the colors I used would always fade. And it was an amazing revelation to have a makeup product that didn't fade with heat, that didn't sweat off. Because in the first entire run of Buffy, those first two seasons, we were in these tin warehouses. They were basically like bus shelters in the middle of the heat in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. And every vampire I painted white had a red neck because I could not keep the paint on their neck. And in fact, I was told by someone who was on the panel of the first Emmy that we put ourselves up for that the reason we lost the Emmy was because of a red neck on a white vampire. So looking back at the beginning and establishing the challenges of, of Buffy, it was all about the paint and the color and how is it gonna work on camera and how white can we make them versus how flesh colored can we make them and all of that. At the beginning, Joss wanted white vampires. He wanted that standard pale face. But over the seasons, I eventually did shift the color of the vampires to being skin tone for that very reason, because we just couldn't maintain it. It was too much stuff. That's one little insight. You know, it's interesting. I know, uh, Douglas, when you were on the show uh, a while ago and we talked about Loki, you also talked about the innovations and what you learned um, on those early years on Buffy. It was exactly that. Where I spoke about uh, Kenny Myers trying out his new product on season three and season four and how that was a, an absolute game changer and that it was, uh, looking back, it was a huge honor and privilege to be a very small part of the artist's that were uh, streamlining this product and, and utilizing it for makeups on television and film. Season four was like a four-year college course in prosthetic makeup. We did, we did at least three or four makeups every single day. It was never a dull moment. I learned so much in, in eight months. I learned years worth of knowledge in eight months on season four. Well, as we tease, we're going to dive deeper into some of those uh, season four lessons. But there's something else you mentioned, Todd, that I wanted to follow up on. You talked about working in those tin sheds in that lot. I remember that even in season four, when I was filming Buffy, it wasn't on one of those studio lots, you know, out in Burbank. It was this separate standalone space, basically like converted warehouses, not built stages, if I remember correctly. Those converted warehouses were our home from the beginning. Yes, we were on location a lot. There were all kinds of locations, including a cemetery off Washington. <laughs> that was our go-to Friday night. Oh, my God. But, <laughs> but eventually they built the cemetery in the front parking lot of the studio so that we didn't actually have to travel out so much 
and do those, well, we called it Buffy the Weekend Slayer. We, we didn't have to do those horrendous Friday nights into Saturday because we could catch a few of the graveyard scenes at sunset. So it was a very wise, wise decision. It was a rectangular lot. At the back of it were some office buildings. That's where our production was. On the other side of it was an art center called Bergamont Station. And with the three warehouses, which we didn't work in at first, we only had two. The third one was being used by a movie called, I think it was Volcano, <laughs> where they were filming all of the volcano flooding over sequences. At the front end, there was a gate. There were all of our trailers parked. And at the sort of back quarter was a little bit of a parking lot. So all of that eventually got taken over by the show. The cafe and the walking area was the parking lot at the back. The entrance to nightclubs was the back entrance to the stage. Uh, all of that was incorporated. Funny story. The props department, I believe, or maybe it was set dressing, when anyone would be fired, it would be a Friday night. They worked them through the week, but if they were going to go, they'd fire them on Friday. And Monday morning, there would be a tombstone in the cemetery with their name on it. <laughs> until production wised up and saw it specifically with art department there was a lot of set building going on if they're going to construct the clock tower or some cave or an interior mausoleum that's not already built it's being designed and done at the same time that we're filming on these converted warehouse stages and so there was a lot of warning and quiet and the constant noise from their work was an ongoing bit of stress for me, at least as a trainee. Athena, as an AD, maybe you have some more insights or whether you just managed to block that out after a while. <laughs> it was it was a pain. It was a pain. And it went on the whole time. I mean, there was no mill. The mill was wherever they were building the stage, right? It was just a lot of work. It wasn't like bringing the walls out or using something where we'd been before. Right. No, and it, was... everybody keeps saying converted warehouses. There, They were still warehouses. There was nothing really done to them to make... They were Quonset huts, right? They were giant tin cans. I mean, I think they tried to put some um, insulation, but it was, they were giant tin cans. Every plane overhead, right? Every plane, every person talking mm -hmm. in the parking lot, you could mm -hmm. hear it all. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And of course, being a tin square, it was a little oven. <laughs> yes. I don't think we ever used heat in there now that I think about it. Not once. No, that we had huge uh, AC tubes that would cool the area in front of them <laughs> and nothing else. <laughs> and then we had to shut the chiller off when we were shooting on one of the stages because it was too loud. That was like a giant 10-ton air conditioning unit that had to be like shut down and couldn't be turned back on until, you know, enough time had passed because it had to warm down. So, yeah. The one thing I remember about the sets on Buffy it was one of the first times I'd ever seen someone, our, our set designer, and again, the name's gone out of my head, take a set and use all of the same pieces and turn it around into another set overnight. It was really amazing what he achieved. The sets on Buffy were astounding to me. Well, what else about those early years do you think sort of got codified into the, into the sort of the rhythm of the show uh, going forward? Again, my, my memories of all of that stuff really blend together. The differences between one season and another. I remember that it was important to establish right from the front that we had the main trailer, 
the people who worked in that trailer. And then we had a second trailer that was always prosthetics. So we would fill that trailer with staff when it was needed. But out of the main trailer, where we had three makeup artists and two hairdressers, we ran the entire show. This is kind of unusual because around that period, everything was shifting to a new pattern where producers would hire the effects company before they hired any makeup staff. And the effects company would have their people who staffed their side of the show. And then they'd hire someone to do beauty makeup and they wouldn't have any interaction with those people. That wasn't my plan at all. I was brought through the system. I was given my real breaks in the business by Mike Westmore. And I sort of patterned myself after that makeup artist who had his own lab. He built stuff for his own shows and ran both the beauty and the makeup side of it. Early on, that was part of the footwork of balancing. They asked me, what prosthetic house do you want to work with? And I had worked with Optic Nerve on other projects, including Dracula Dead and Loving It. And they had built stuff for that as well as other shows. And I really loved all of their work on Douglas Help Me. What was their space show? That Avalon they 5. Avalon 5. Thank you. Which had brilliant makeup in it. It was so beautifully done. So that's the name I put forward. And I know that the company looked at the Bermans who had done the presentation, as well as a whole bunch of other different companies. And when they went for a tour of the Optic Nerve Studios, they walked in and saw a six foot tall praying mantis and actually had in two or three scripts from the first season, a praying mantis teacher. <laughs> and they said, okay, that's the company. Todd likes them and that's the <laughs> mantis. So we don't have to have it built. So that's how Optic Nerve got involved. So I was already in a position of um, communication with Optic Nerve and John Bullich, who was running it at the time. And he accepted that there was going to be a communication between the department head makeup on the show and the prosthetic house in the old fashioned way it would have been done. For example, uh, Phillips on Star Trek, when he needed pointed ears for Mr. Spock, he outsourced that to John Chambers who built them and gave them to him and he put them on. So that's the pattern we set up, very unlike any other show. So when I hired my original staff, when I was looking at staff all the way through, they had to be able to do both beauty and prosthetics. That was the key. Well, I think that that, that skill set, Todd, that you're looking for becomes very apparent with what I think in season four, compare this to other earlier seasons. This is where the initiative plays this sort of running thread through the season. And my takeaway from that, and I think it affects everybody here, is that you think you have a lot of demons and vampires that are just in the background. So in addition to whether it's monster of the week or our ongoing monster threats, now in addition, we have just people walking down halls or in these stages that have to be made up as well. And just adding all of that time, that just that seems like an enormous additional complication to the entire process of getting this show done. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the, the initiative with all of the, um, the cages that they were keeping the demons in. So you're walking down the corridor and there's just demons in cages. I, I don't remember, Douglas, did we do regular full makeups on those or were some of those pull over the head masks? Most of those were makeups. Uh, the, I guess the idea you had was to be ready for anything. You never knew what was going to be featured and what was going to remain a background creature. 
So that's what I'm saying. We did countless makeups every single day for eight months. It was incredible. Yeah, I'm beginning to remember now that sometimes we would have no control over what they were doing and they weren't telling me in advance that this one was going to be featured or that one was going to be featured. It was just, they looked down the row, whatever looked interesting, they'd feature it. So we had to make sure everything was camera ready all the time. So trying to plan out for what was going to be filmed in advance, that feels like a conversation, Athena, you probably had with Todd and Douglas and the makeup folks on a regular basis there. Well, yeah, and for not getting the information from above, which I think was the case, we just had to be ready for anything. We didn't shoot the initiative We had been shooting pieces of the initiative and we didn't shoot the actual big wide until months. And I feel like, or maybe it was months, it was weeks, but it felt like years, but yeah. No, I remember that from the first part, it was like there were tunnels underground under the university and the monsters would come out, but we would never go in to the initiative until the end. One of the fondest memories I have, and you'll find this very strange, but I'm a Virgo, so what do you want? (laughs) was making the daily chart. I would have to do a a flow chart because I can't hold numbers in my head. That's never been a skill of mine. I have to see it on paper. And so Athena would come to me with a prelim and I would chart out makeup artists down the side, actors across the top, and who went in which chair at which time for how long to try and get it done. This is a, a part of the establishing. I do remember that in the first season, We had, I think it was something like 25 vampires in a night sequence at the school. And I wanted to hire like 20 makeup artists and I had it charted out. And I got a call to go up to the Welshman's office. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went there and he said, this is unsustainable. We cannot do this. And I pulled my chart out and I said, we can go this way. I'll hire less people. We'll start earlier in the morning. Or we can squish it this way and we can hire more people and get it done in less time. And he looked at my chart and sort of blinked a few times and said, fine, (laughs) and left it. And that was really the establishing of the fact that I knew how to run a department and I could work this out. And they never asked me again. Well, the other challenge you have in that space, and this is a through line from the beginning of the series, I'm sure, is that there's a lot of fighting. And so in these cases, you have the makeup on the person, like the actor, and then you have the makeup on the stunt team that is going to be doing that as well. And I imagine some of this stuff, you also don't know how well it's going to be featured and you need them to look the same for a lot of this fighting back and forth. So you've essentially, in these cases, doubled the number of people that are going through, whether it's creature makeup or even the beauty makeup for the folks, because obviously Buffy's at the center of most of these fights, right? And so her and her stunt double need to both be made up and ready to hit the ground running on this. It, It wasn't quite as bad as that because they very quickly realized that they would hire stunt performers to be the monsters. So there were no doubles, you know, unless it was a, an actor who actually spoke, you know, and, and had then they had to hire an actor and there would be a double for him. But yes, uh, Buffy's double, that was always my responsibility. I think it was the first two seasons that I did Sarah's makeup. And I think it was season three that she had her own team. And this is an example of what was going on with the show because season one and season two, we could handle it. I was always there for her. But by season three, we started having so many monsters, so much stuff happening, green screens, 
second stages being filmed on at one time. Sometimes we'd have three units at once. It was such a juggling act for me that I would make Sarah up in the morning and send her to the set with someone to look after her. And it wouldn't normally be Douglas or one of the other people in my trailer because they had things to do. She would often get stuck with day players and that blew up one day. She went up to the office and said, you know, Todd's really busy and I don't feel taken care of and I need my own team. And they gave it to her. But even after that, I was doing Sarah's stunt double. So there was always just this turnover of stuff. Do you remember the three unit days? Yes. So uh, don't forget after season four, we got, we ended up with two Buffy doubles. We had Melissa and Michelle, right? One was the martial arts and one was the gymnast. And you really saw the difference on the show with it, with now you have two people doing uh, two different specializations of Sarah. But of course, we had to get them already. Uh, not all the time. Usually we knew who was going to be doing which thing, but oftentimes there was both of them. Yeah. Since you're mentioning that and we're talking about stunts, I, I do want to recall an amazing day. It was going on forever. It was a boxing ring fight of some kind with Sarah and a demon. And I don't remember the show or the plot. But I remember the day was just like watching wallpaper paste dry. It was going on so long. And Sarah finally said, listen, we're going to do it this way. And she choreographed the fight, set the whole thing up and directed it. (laughs) You know, I have the most amazing kudos to Sarah for what she was able to achieve how she was so totally involved with everything that we filmed. It it was uh, amazing. I mean, like all actors, there's hiccups here and hiccups there. That's, That's stuff I don't remember too much. But I do remember that Sarah took over that day and could choreograph a fight sequence. And that was pretty impressive. Well, by then, I'm sure she had quite a few under her belt. I do remember um, as the trainee, interestingly enough, Sarah uh, had a process for getting ready to come to set. And I had to knock on her door, I want to say at very specific times leading up to the the set call. You know, again, I'm new. I'm not a kid at this point, but uh, running around and and trying to balance all these things. To miss one could cause a delay in filming, right? Like if if I tried to give a five-minute warning and I hadn't given the 10-minute warning, well, then we were at 10 minutes so that she could have her process ready for coming to set. Athena, I think you've got so much going on as the key second and planning for tomorrow and executing. Talk a little bit just about how all of these restrictions on you trying to make the day, I don't know. Maybe this is a show you actually stuck with for more than one season. <laughs> uh, you know, it's always a thing. Actors are always a thing. I don't think second ADs would have jobs if it weren't for actors and their processes, you know, I for sure. But I remember when Nick Brandon, Xander, uh, I had to go get him from the trailer and I never knew about American Spirit cigarettes, which apparently take a long time to smoke. And he was like, let me just fin- finish the cigarette. I come back in five minutes. He's still smoking the same cigarette. <laughs> I come back five minutes later and I'm like, what is this cigarette? But anyway, American Spirits, slow burning cigarette. Don't allow them. Well, we're going to talk more about uh, our time with the actors, but let's also talk about some highlights of season four. Up front, and I want to spend a little time with this. I've never met a Buffy fan that doesn't light up when I say that I worked on Hush which was episode 10 of that uh, season four. Hush was a, an interesting episode. The makeup was mostly centered around their smiling. 
right? They had these ghostly heads, but these big metallic teeth with a big smile. So Optic Nerve built two variations. One was a regular makeup and the other was a, a fixed smile makeup. So that the smile and the teeth and everything were built into it like a mask. We talked and once we had our actors, once we had Doug Jones and- um, Camden Toy. Camden Toy, thank you. Camden's a wonderful man and I see him all the time. Sorry, Camden, I remember <laughs> names. And Camden Toy, we discovered or, or Joss discovered that they could actually hold the fixed smile and have more subtle facial expressions. And they didn't need to have the, uh, the mask-like version. So that was relegated to background actors. Camden and Douglas were our focus lead characters. Before we started that very first day of filming, I was kind of stuck with how to paint them. And this, this would happen every once in a while. Sometimes Optic Nerve would give me instructions. Sometimes I would get my instructions from the script, from Joss saying, I want a white veiny demon, whatever in the script. But sometimes I would be sort of left on my own to figure it out. And I remember outside the trailer at night with this prosthetic in my hand, sort of worrying over it and trying to figure out what to do. When Joss came out of the set from some visit to the set, and I asked him, and I, I don't remember his answer, but I think it was more or less, do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up painting the initial head as a test run, very much like we had done the master. It was pale. It was veiny. It wasn't, to me, one of our more exciting makeups as far as the look was concerned. It was the actors underneath it that brought that to life. I remember you designed the look, and uh, I remember in doing Camden, uh, there were other choices, artistic choices I wanted to make. And I remember in a testament to you and, and uh, how we all approached these makeups, your mindset was, I don't care how you go about it, just make sure it looks how it's supposed to look and can last 18 hours. One thing I specifically remember is you use black powder around Doug Jones's eyes and I used black cream, which reflected light. And then I had to go back in and powder. So it was constantly learning. It was, and I do remember, and they're in, I think the Buffy uh, companion book. I took a lot of photos that season. I took tons and tons and tons of photos because it was a crash course. You know, I could have, I could have put together a, a seminar just based on the photos I took. But yeah, I, rem I remember that being a, a blast and also being given that artistic autonomy to achieve the look, but go about it the way I, I wanted to go about it, which was very freeing. I was never, we were never, as artists, we were never locked into a way to go about a certain thing unless it was tried and true. It was a stunt and this is how it needed to be done to stay put. Otherwise, we were given a lot of freedom. And it, in the same case with the, uh, the gentleman. And I, I truly believe that we are all artists, makeup artists, hairdressers in our union. Everyone's an artist. Everyone, if you give them a piece of paper and you ask them to do a painting or do a drawing, are going to approach it differently. It's not my job to tell you, pick up the brush and do this stroke and only use that paint. My job is to say, this is the finished product. Get there how you want to. Well, listeners, if you're this far into the podcast and you haven't actually seen these episodes, some of this might be the confusion, but just to prompt your memory, the gentlemen are these suit-wearing demons 
that uh, with the makeup you described. So we mentioned Doug Jones, we mentioned uh, Cameron Toy, and then I'm a little unclear. Were there two to four others as well? Did we have six of them at one time running around? Because that is still, even with the ones that have the locked faces, that's a lot of makeup to pull off for some of these wider scenes where they're floating down the street. That's another aspect of it. These these folks actually hover and move. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But in the numbers, four of them total or six of them total? Any recollection? I believe there were six. Because there were four with a fixed smile, and then Doug and Camden. And they, I know we would use and reuse the four with the fixed smiles to perhaps give the appearance that there were more of them. That, that sounds right to my memory. Now, Athena, do you have any memories of how we executed the floating? Yeah, it was a, some kind of cart, a white cart that they stood on if you didn't see their legs, if you didn't see their feet. And if you saw them hovering, it was a, you know, harness, a stunt harness kind of thing with wires. Mostly it was the cart because we didn't see them wide that much. But when we did, we really did. In the hallway in the school, I believe they hovered. And then, of course, out on the street for the big universal when we shot the neighborhood. I remember filming at that location that we used for the um, college where the oh, yeah. people in were South out. Pasadena or South Alameda. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. And. When I think of Hush, I have memories of being in the trailer and I have memories of one night outside where they were floating. I remember a track and how really difficult and precise it was to lay that track so that they appeared to float down the path. And that was a very long night, but that night sticks in my memory for some reason. I vaguely remember that as well. Now it's coming back to me. Yeah, it was a very intricate and, and narrow dolly track, if I'm not mistaken, that they would move them down this path. It was pretty cool, actually, at the time. Uh, I remember it being very exciting filming. And Athena, to your point, we established that they're floating in some of these key shots, one in the neighborhood, uh, maybe one or two inside the hallway. And after that point, then if they're not going to see their feet, you can push them on the cart and they have that same lack of body movement uh, as they're going. But because we've already established that they're floating, there is no confusion around it. There's no need to do it again. And so I think that was pretty effective. All that came together. Well, yeah. talk to me about some of your favorite memories, whether it's episodes or just about what we executed that season. Uh, what comes to mind for you guys? Everything rolls together and I'm, I didn't rewatch the season, so I'm not sure. But the other episode that was really important to me for some reason in my head was Beer Bad. It was a, um, a chance to do something that was different. It wasn't a demon. It wasn't a vampire. It was something Earth-based. Like, we get to do cavemen. Okay, what does that look like? You know, it was a big job to take these young men that they had hired to turn into muscle-bound, ape-like cavemen. And I, I don't know that we got ape-like, <laughs> but we spent a lot of time airbrushing muscles in, that's for sure. <laughs> and laying hair on bodies and laying beards. And Douglas was, um, you were so great at that, Douglas. Some of the best beard work I had seen up to that point. Really, really beautiful. Douglas is Thank a ridiculous you. artist. I remember that, actually. I remember that very well. But I, wasn't Cal Penn in Beer Bad? He was, actually. 
Cal Penn, before Harold Kumar and everywhere else his career is gone, he's doing a guest spot on Buffy as one of these fraternity boys who drinks this mystic beer and, and reverts to a caveman over the course of the episode. I'd love to see where the rest of those guys are now. That would be a fun, where are they now? IMDb folks, not only can you cross-reference <laughs> the credits of my guests, but from there, uh, bounce into the actors uh, who appeared in those episodes as well. I also remember uh, the introduction of uh, Leonard Roberts, Bailey Chase, Mark Lucas, and Lindsey Krause. And that kind of elevated the whole season, just the presence, especially Lindsey Krause, I think, having such a seasoned veteran actress join us. That was pretty exciting. You know, when you bring up Lindsey Krause, she dies rather abruptly about halfway through the season. And there's a bit at the end where Adam turned Lindsay and another scientist into zombies. Does Lindsay actually come back for that bit or are you guys using photo doubles? I feel sort of like I'm in a Harry Potter movie where I'm, I'm pulling little strings of memory <laughs> out of my head. I don't recall a lot about her, but I do believe she did come back to be in the zombie makeup. I believe that was her. Does that Adam makeup bring back memories, that mashup of monster and machine that he ended up being the big bad for the second half of the season? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that brings back a lot of memories. <laughs> Adam, I believe, I can easily say, was the most difficult makeup we ever did on the show. And that's just because of the way it came together. Adam was conceived and they hadn't, cast an actor. So Optic Nerve was getting panicky as we were getting towards the filming date and they started sculpting it on just any life mask they had so that when they finally got an actor, they could just move the pieces over to the head cast of the actual actor. And eventually we got him and the makeup was delivered, but it was so last minute that it wasn't complete. Things were not thought through terribly well. Optic Nerve, bless them, <laughs> were trying, I think, to help us. And they painted his suit, but they were in a lab and they had 12 hours to do nothing but sit around and paint little lines and veins and dots and marks on this torso. But we had replaceable arms, like one arm was just his hand and that had to come off. And then the arm that was the extended weapon would go on. And Some kind of machine gun, yeah, that comes out of his arm. All these pieces... Plus we have a zipper down the back and a blend of the cowl piece, the face piece onto the chest. And that was all done with strips of blank foam latex. So you're putting these strips on to cover the zippers and cover the blends and do all of that. And they all had to be painted to match the suit, which was painstaking little <laughs> dots and lines and veins. And the first time we did it was an eight hour makeup. The test was eight hours which obviously is unsustainable. I believe, Douglas, did we get it down to five? five or six? I, th I think so. I think, um, you know, that was something, uh, because it was labor intensive, I'm pretty sure I was usually on set by then. That's not a makeup I was heavily involved in. And I, I, I feel like Kenny Myers was with you for much of that makeup, but I honestly don't remember, but I do remember it was streamlined quite a bit. I, like you, you nearly cut the time in half. I do remember that, but that was born from necessity, of course. Yeah. I, I remember it was Jay Wahebi. Oh, okay. Jay was with me on that one. I have in my collection, and I'm sure you've got pictures too, about 
five or six pictures of that actor, Hertzberg, right? Yeah, George Hertzberg played Hertzberg. Adam. He is not smiling in any picture <laughs> that I have of him. <laughs> and I don't blame him. <laughs> it was an excruciating process for him. Not only did we have to sit him down and put the pieces on him, we're taking five or six hours to do it, but we got to a certain point, he had to stand. So we, we had him between two chairs on whatever he was standing and we were painting and gluing and painting and gluing. <laughs> he just stood there for two, three hours as part of the process. So I don't think he was very happy about that process. And I would wager that he probably never did a prosthetic again. <laughs> You know, it makes me think of uh, he has one scene in the final episode and George Hertzberg gets to be out of makeup Him actually getting to have a day on set where he wasn't going through all of that. It must have just seemed like a, a completely different world to him. Absolutely. I, I'm remembering now there were more problems. It was complicated in a thousand ways. They wanted his hair. They didn't want him in a wig, but he had that metallic piece, that sort of half crown. Well, they never made any way to put it on him. We got peace and we got Hertzberg with his hair. And I remember our hairdresser, Michael Moore, who was very inventive. He came from the theater. So he, he had a lot of um, ability to extemporize, created these patches of Velcro that he would pin into George's hair. And then we had Velcro on the inside of the crown and we just plunked it on. So that entire heavy crown was attached to his hair and pulling his hair the entire time he was wearing it. Then we get a script that says, oh, it opens up and you can see lights going on inside. <laughs> so suddenly it opens sideways and now his head is going like this because at that point we still had no remedy for it. We were just Velcroing it to his hair. <laughs> I think ultimately that is the challenge of this kind of a TV show. I remember working on Star Trek and not the original series. <laughs> and having that same sort of, okay, here it is, make it work mentality because you're, you're so backed up with things and it's so slow. I mean, slow for us to get to it fast for them uh, in creating it, that you have to figure out how to deal with things as they come. I remember a demon of some kind. I no longer recall what it is. We were on location and it had a fiberglass headpiece and the prosthetic glued up to there, but there was supposed to be hair. And we had wigs, but we had no way to stick the wigs onto the fiberglass because it wouldn't accept pins. And I remember running around that night. The sun was setting. We had a night shoot. These demons had to work. And I finally ended up at the special effects trailer, getting them to attach screws that would stick out that the hairdressers could then tie the wig onto the screw nubs that were sticking up. That's TV. That's making it work in TV. That's exactly what I'm talking about. There, there were, you know, set call was set call. If you, there was an element to the makeup that was left out or that you had to figure out, you figured it out. We always had colleagues to the left and right of us because, you know, again, countless makeup and hair talent came through Buffy every season. You figured it out. And, and if you couldn't figure it out, you would ask a colleague or, you know, do some quick experimenting. But yeah, there were many, many times where uh, it wasn't completely fleshed out. But again, because of the trust that you had, you know, instilled in all of us, 
we got it done. And I think it looked fantastic. And this happened day in and day out. Yeah, it was a, it was a daily exercise for sure. There were techniques that I remembered from being a kid in theater. For example, there's a snake man, seems to me early, a mansion and he, there's a ritual and they're cutting into his back and revealing or cutting a pattern in to his back. I painted red packs on his skin and covered it with flesh colored grease paint and the dull knife just scraped the grease paint away. Simple, easy tricks, but tricks that the average person doesn't have in their repertoire unless they've been doing TV for a while and have that sort of theatrical bent. Well, Athena, talk to me a little bit about what it was like on set with all of these challenges. Again, every day is a uh, challenge in the hair makeup trailer to get folks ready and on set. But on set itself, you're facing all kinds of challenges. Is this just the nature of TV or was this show unique? So it was my first Director's Guild show and it was also my first TV show. So I was like, oh, this is how we do it. Oh, okay. Which (laughs) (laughs) I would say everything else has been just easy since because that's not the case. I think people make things more complicated than they need to on shows I've worked on. And I'm like, no, we used to do vampires in an hour and a half. I saw it happen, you know? Again, I had nothing to compare it to. And these guys made it work. You guys did it. And I don't remember waiting for vampires or waiting for demons. I just know that I really like vampires. And for some reason, I didn't love demons. I don't know if it's because they took longer or the actors were more uncomfortable being in demon things because they were bigger. And I was trying to recall my one of my favorites, and I think he's everybody's almost favorite, is uh, Andy Umberger. He was de Hoffren. He, uh, he came back a lot. White again, beard, three, purple. Yeah? Yeah. And, and uh, three kind of horn things. But I don't remember any of the struggle. I don't remember it being painfully slow or anything like that. Because again, it was my first TV show. We did everything fast. Were you around Brenda at that point? Uh, Brenda, yes. Yeah. The uh, first AD, Brenda... And I started on a rocky footing because she was doing her pressure thing. And I was saying, look, it's going to be this. and This is the way it works. But we eventually became very good friends. And I I really loved her sense of humor. But I remember one day on set, it was chaos. There were things moving. There were grips and electrics running around. It was just crazy. And I was on set just what is going on here? And Brenda was like, she was standing. <laughs> but she was like this with her headphone on. And she went, click, I hate you all. <laughs> I laughed so hard. That was one of my favorite memories. I oh, that's hate beautiful. <laughs> I have a very similar memory. I've shared this with you, Skid. Can I share this story again? Oh, yeah. I'm coming in at four, whatever, in, a, in the morning with my Frappuccino in hand. So it must have been five, whatever, because Starbucks was clearly open. And you're walking towards me and I see you've got your hand on your mic. You're talking. And as you come into earshot, I hear you say, yes, you are correct. There is no I in team, but there is an I in kiss my ass. And you let go of your mic. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's going to be one of those kind of days, I suppose. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I know you don't remember that, but I swear you did. I swear. I just wonder who you've been talking to. I was going to say, probably not you, Athena, right? I don't think you would have. (laughs) Or maybe. I mean, that's uh, telling these stories and having a laugh about it does remind me. And again, it was a very intense 10 weeks, I think it's fair to say. 
my primary job on the show, I believe, was knocking on doors and getting people into hair and makeup and then into the set. I had an additional job of calling up to the offices so that Josh could come down and watch every filming scene, not every rehearsal. He had to get a call at a specific time that gave enough running distance that he could make it down for the actual filming. But that was a whole nother level of, you know, moving things around and getting one to set and then getting the timing exactly right. It was a very stressful show. And yet I remember it fondly. And I remember all of you fondly. And I think we had fun doing this stuff. I mean, as intense as it was, the memories of just having a laugh with people and doing things kind of wacky. And uh, that's all still really strong for me on this one as well. Absolutely. I, I think that Buffy was the closest thing to what I got into the business to do. That was it. I got beauty makeup. I got monster makeup. I was running the show. It was busy. It was fun. We were having a good time. Admittedly, I had bad days. <laughs> there were definitely bad days there. But if Dark Shadows was my inspiration, Buffy was the closest you could come to Dark Shadows. It had all of the same elements. I had so much invested in it that at some point, someone called me the ambassador to Buffy. <laughs> because I also got on the fan sites and I was at night talking to fans on the websites because that was brand new at the time. It was a big deal. And if you were a crew member or an actor, you had a color. So if you posted in color, they knew they were talking to an actual person. No one else could post in color. So that was fun. <laughs> that, that was part of it. And I remember taking fans on a tour of the set on a Sunday when the studio was closed. Uh, I remember all kinds of things that were extracurricular to it. I remember walking in a mall in San Francisco with a Buffy jacket on. And a rabid fan came running up to me and I eventually gave him my jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that was how intense this show was. Still has a huge, huge fan base and following. Uh, the, the Loki series, which I did last year, the director was wearing a Sunnydale jacket herself. And when she found out I was one of the members of the makeup crew, there were countless questions from her. She was a huge fan. Yeah, they pop up all over the place. I got a small independent movie called Carriers only because the two directors who were brothers were Buffy fans. They saw <laughs> it on my resume and they hired me. <laughs> I had a good time overall. I remember two days that stand out as awful. Um, one was Brent. It was the first day we established the initiative up in Santa Clarita. And it was a big, big place. And Brenda's dog had to be put down. So I had to first that day and I don't think we brought anybody in to help. And I was just like overwhelmed and it was huge. And there was, I think we had, um, it was like a golf cart, like a trolley cart go through. I mean, we had so many elements. That was one. And then the other time that happened, almost the same thing, except it was Alan Steinman, who was the first, uh, didn't come into work because he was sick. And that was for uh, Xander and Emma's uh, wedding. With, oh, I think that was the most demons were up in Altadena. We had a whole church filled with demons and monsters. It was, it was the biggest monster day ever, I think, on the show. And I can't remember anything except being totally overwhelmed, like, oh, my God, what is this? What is this? And it was a, those were long days. Both of them were. But Made those you my... appreciate what Brenda was going through when she said, <laughs> 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 I 
I hate you all. Click. Oh uh, yeah. It was it was rough. Like, why did you why did you have to put your dog down? Why did it happen happen on this day? You know. But remember the remember the um wedding? I think it was their wedding, oh, right? God, yeah. There was yeah. A, there was probably fifty. I don't even know. It was an an entire church filled with even if they were background, there was a lot of people that were not background. I know I wasn't there for that. I think that's season five, if I know the timeline correctly. I, I don't remember much about it. I do remember the day, the church wedding yeah. day. Yeah. I remember I was having problems with some of my uh, makeup artists that I had hired for the day who didn't like each other. <laughs> were causing a bit of a hassle in the trailers. So I was busy dealing with that. I, I don't even think I was on set for a good chunk of that day. Todd, you'd have seen Athena pulling her hair out on that one, it sounds like. So maybe best to steer clear. But my other notable comment on Buffy is that even amongst all this chaos, I felt like we just have found time to have fun. People getting along, looking for fun things to do. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Otherwise, you go insane. I remember lots of laughter, lots of moments of just breaking down and laughing. I also remember moments of just sitting there with my eyes falling out of my head, so tired that I could barely move. I did my first 23-hour day on Buffy. Oh my God. There was one story that I'll tell that I, I really love. Wonderful makeup artist. Her name is Jill Rockow. She's no longer a makeup artist. She was working with us this day. And we had a uh, young lady who had no arms and no legs. And she was playing this sort of bug creature. And we had built a special trolley that she could get up on. And we could put her in this full body prosthetic, which she hated, and wheel her to the set and help her get into position. But because we knew that she hated it and it was very difficult work to get that done, we also had a dummy that was made to look exactly like her. And the dummy was leaning up against the wall. And I remember one night, very tired, looking as <laughs> Jill got up, walked over, did a full touch up, makeup, checked under the eyes, did the whole thing, came back and sat down. And I said, that's the dummy. <laughs> that's how tired we were. <laughs> she didn't even know. <laughs> there, there were a lot of nights like that. And we ended up swapping her out. Her, she ended up with a stunt double because I remember that as well because she was very sensitive. She had been cast as, a, oh, no, no, I'm fine. And in the, in the end, she wasn't fine. And we ended up hiring a little person, a stunt woman who I've worked with since she was amazing. And she could get in there and move the spider, but it wasn't really as <laughs> like a spider. But she, could, she could get in there and do it. And she ended up doing most of the work, I think, when the dummy wasn't working, of course. <laughs> yeah, there were, there's... A thousand stories like that. The stuntman who told me he was itching a bit under the prosthetic. And I said, well, how bad is it? Well, it's kind of burning. It's kind of itchy, burny. And I said, okay, you're, you're coming out of the makeup right now. He said, I can't. I'll lose my job. But my reputation as a stuntman, I, I can't. So he finished the night and we pulled that mask off and he was just a mass of blisters, totally allergic to rubber. He had blisters on his ears all the way around the show. It was just horrific or um, Lee what was Lee's uh, yes Lee Lee he doubled um, Seth Green right right he was the werewolf yeah he was great I got shot in the um, balls uh, we, a miss <laughs> a miss stunt happened where the Xander double was supposed to 
shoot uh, like a bow and arrow. <laughs> he, ended up, he ended up misfiring and truly fired into Lee's. <laughs> yeah, Lee had a lot of problems in that suit. <laughs> Lee is a brilliant um, stuntman and I've worked with him since. Uh, I believe he's a director now. He's not doing oh, great. But he um, was raised on a farm and had spent a lot of time learning to run like an animal. And he could do the, the werewolf run down the hallway thing. One time, well, two parts to this story, he was running down the high school hallway and turned and it was our last shot of the night. And he was running into the camera and his face was hanging like this. And they left it. It's still in there if you go to look for it. it, just, it he was so sweaty and had done it so many times, the makeup just fell off. But I do recall one night also when we pulled him out of the werewolf suit, he was covered in rashes. And that was heat rash from the suit and from the exertion that he was going through. I, there was stuff like that all the time. Were you around, Douglas, when we had to do the young guy that was going to be an intermittent stage of the werewolf transformation? And we had four of us hand laying hair all over this guy's body. He was covered in spirit gum and hair. <laughs> it was I look like naked from the waist up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a mess. <laughs> Make it work. <laughs> you were asking about uh, Joss. So there, there is one story that I've told, I've told this many times, uh, particularly to make up students because it's something that I think they need to hear. But what you want as a department head or as a makeup artist on set in any circumstance is to do your job, do it well, do it quietly, not really be noticed. And there was a night, it was about three o'clock in the morning, and I was walking from the trailer to the production office to drop something off. And it happened that Joss was walking from the production office to the stage and we passed each other and he got a good ways past me and I heard him call me. So I turned around and, and walked back to him and he said, I just want you to know you're the one department I don't ever have to worry about. I think that is probably the highest praise I've ever received in 42 years at work. That's what you want to hear. Do your job, do it well, eat a donut, go home when they tell you. <laughs> well, I know as a trainee on Buffy, the highest praise that I could get was to score an invitation to Todd's annual Halloween party. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, where I don't know that it was mandatory that everybody show up as vampires, but uh, I remember there was a lot of that. <laughs> I remember at the time uh, I had just bought my first house. And yeah, we, we had cocktail parties quite a lot. <laughs> Do you remember Dane Johnson? Dane Day checked with us a lot and eventually went on to be the department head on uh, uh, Angel. I, Dane was wearing some costume at the party that had feather bits on it and walked through the living room and caught fire. <laughs> he just started to burn because of one of the candles and he walked out into the front yard and was drinking his thing. I didn't know he was on fire. And the other makeup artist on our show, Robin Beauchene, tackled him, pushed him down to the ground, <laughs> rolled him in the grass until the fire went out. That's a Halloween memory. <laughs> so in the years since, I do think that there still is a legacy of the show. As you mentioned earlier, there's still a large fan base. People just enjoy revisiting a lot of the the sort of mythos that was created around Buffy. I know there was talk a couple of years ago about relaunching or reimagining the series or doing a sequel. Were any of you um, connected to that, even through the rumor mill that you knew more information about it? 
No, I, I don't imagine so. I mean, it would be an entirely new group of people. I doubt very much they would reach out to to bring old retirement age makeup artists back <laughs> to the show. <laughs> I have a sneaky suspicion if if Buffy were done today, much if not half of the work that we did would now be CGI. Yes. Computer generated. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was interesting for me because I thought I understood the process, but every season I would come back and they would have upgraded to a new process. So things were constantly changing. And I would think, okay, it's time to do green screen for the vampire. Oh, we don't need to do that anymore. What? (laughs) It it was such a, a quickly evolving process. And at first we were on, um, we weren't on film or not film that is regularly used. It was a different speed of film. So everything was grainy. So I think for like the first two years, the show was very, very grainy and odd looking, which helped the makeups, but (laughs) wasn't very fun to watch. And then we switched to film and everything had to be recalibrated again. It was very, very interesting. Well, at least the memories you guys haven't blocked out. Really appreciate you guys coming on the show today and and revisiting this. Thank you, Skid. Thank you, Skid. Season 9 continues. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also listed on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, thanks for sticking around, and I hope you're enjoying the season. Tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. Todd, I was noticing in IMDb that you're listed as a vampire. It looks like one of the first seasons. Did you get to play a vampire on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I did indeed. Actually, I didn't get to wear a makeup. I was... Um, <sighs> It was a sequence in a goth club and we were going to the Emmys for the very first time. And I had had an Edwardian outfit built for me to go to the Emmys in. And I I showed it to someone and they suggested that I should be the host of the club. So when you come into the club, there's a coffin and I'm in the coffin, just sort of there. And I welcomed people in and then the scene went on and that was it. But they dubbed my voice. So they didn't have to pay me. Oh, very nice. (laughs) That's my only acting credit. Season two, episode seven, lie to me. There you are, Todd. I'm going to go look that one up. I'm going to go look it up too.